Hey, tennis fans, you are listening to Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. We're also members of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre. And Mike, a lengthy clay court season is nearing the end as we're coming up on that second slam of the year with French Open around the corner. And we can recap action in Rome with Daniil Medvedev winning. Elena Rybakina winning, and I speak to a new guest, first time on the show. Gil Gross. And, yeah. uh, and you know, I got to tell you, I thought we'd already had him on the podcast at some point. So I don't know if I'm just getting older and losing my mind, or we've just had so many guests on Matchpoint Canada that it's tough to say, because we're talking to a lot of these people behind the scenes as well. So sometimes I forget, like, was that just an informal chat that I had with that person, or have they actually been a guest? So yeah, I guess that is Gil's first appearance, and and I couldn't even make it as I was camping on the long weekend here in in Ontario, in Canada. So, uh, yeah, missed out. But listen to the chat that you two had, and uh, you know, fantastic guy to have on. Someone we've been certainly talking about having on for some time, and I enjoyed you know the back and forth with you guys, kind of recapping you know what we've seen through the clay court season, and and who are the favorites as we're you know nearly there for the next major of the year in Paris. Yeah, exactly. And what I love uh, about Gil, um, which sometimes you don't get as much of in in tennis media, but you do get a little bit of it, is his breakdowns of matches and his match analysis. And he'll go over, you know, the key moments in matches, shot chart, what happened in, in key moments, why someone is having more success, why someone is maybe struggling. And it makes things really, really interesting. And these elements matter. And we've you know, we never talk about analytics in tennis. That's not really a thing yet. Uh, but there is more data now to track what players are doing on the court. And I think Gil's pretty interested in that, which is which is great as well. Yeah, he reminds me of you a little bit in that sense, actually, because you're obviously very analytical in the game, being a tennis player, a strong tennis player yourself. I wonder if he plays. I know I don't think that came up in your interview I think with I, him. I think he does play a bit, yeah. Well, I wonder, is he between you and me? Like, do I have a chance if we, uh, you know, <laughs> if we challenged him, if he came here to Toronto? I don't know. Yeah. We'll see one day. But um, yeah, hey, look, lots of interesting results. And I mean, just Medvedev and Rabakina. I mean, things are, it's almost like the hardcourt players, are, you know, the fast court players are, are flipping the script a little bit here. And just before Roland Garris to make it a little bit more interesting and just give us a few more names to throw in there as contenders on both the men's and women's side. Yeah, yeah, very, very interesting indeed. I, I think on both sides of the field, men's and women's. Uh, let's get to my conversation with Gil Gross, and then we'll get to your contenders uh, for the upcoming slam as well, Mike. Here's my chat with Gil Gross. You are listening to Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada, and very happy to welcome a broadcaster from the Tennis Channel. He does work at the U.S. Open and also Cracked Rackets, and he has some of the best match recaps and analysis, I think, in the business. Gil Gross, uh, thanks so much for coming on to Matchpoint Canada. Ben, thanks for the invite. Longtime listener of the podcast. You guys oh, do, uh, do great stuff. Thank you so much. Uh, well, it's a privilege to have you on the show. And, you know, as the days sort of count down to main draw action of Roland Garros, her second Grand Slam of the season, I, I think it's privy to sort of look back on the clay court swing that we have had and try and make sense of at least what sort of unfolded on the men's side. And, you know, I I feel like we're going into Roland Garros with more questions than answers. Would you say you, you feel the same way if we're talking about the men's field and, and where things are at right now? 
Well, certainly there are more players who you could say, well, they might win Roland Garros than would be typical. Uh, you know, in a normal year, we, we haven't had that, especially because whenever Nadal has been healthy and even Djokovic to some ex extent, they are such prohibitive favorites that it is uh, it is difficult to really come up with a list of like four or five guys who, who could win. But I think if you were to do it this year, you would get that number to probably six or seven before you get to guys where it's like, okay, definitely not going to win, can't win. And yeah. I don't even know if that counts. I think if you if you throw in, I don't know, maybe like a Casper Ruud, who's not in good form, it wouldn't be expected that he would win, but was a finalist last year. If you want to be that loose with it, I think you can get to eight. Yeah, <laughs> I'm I'm with you there. I mean, I mean, certainly, you know, at the start of the clay court season, probably Daniil Medvedev was was not someone who would be typically entering this conversation whatsoever. And um, I, I do appreciate his forthright honesty about how he's felt with this surface in the past, but we really saw everything sort of click over these past couple of weeks in, in Rome. I, I think he had been building for him, but for him to maybe seize such a big title, 20th of his career, first on clay with a slam, you know, around the corner, he's been there and done it before at the slam level. Like how much does this vault him into the conversation as potential contender? I really think he's right there. And I don't know. It, I'm someone who tries really hard not to overreact to one event. I think I'm pretty good at not overreacting to one event. But you look at the facts with Medvedev, as you mentioned, we've seen him do it before. He's won a slam, multiple finals. He is first in the race, and he's now won Rome. So it's like, what criteria are you looking for? What more criteria are you looking for for him to be considered a contender to win it unless you want to penalize him for his overall body of work over the course of the last uh, three to four years on clay, which just hasn't matched up to what he's been able to do on hard courts. The thing about that and the reason why I hesitate to do that is because, you know, th there were really a lot of circumstances that that make me kind of want to give him somewhat of a pass for what we saw. Uh, 2020 was a weird year. There were only two clay court events. Roland Garros was in in the fall. 2021, Medvedev got COVID. And right before, uh, at, basically at the start of the clay court season, I think that affected him throughout. He didn't have good fitness. He had a terrible attitude about things as well. Didn't give himself much of a competing chance. Uh, and then last year, he was coming back from the hernia injury. He played Geneva, and then he had to jump right into Roland Garros. This is the first time he's had a full clay court season. And then the X factor, Ben, from a technical standpoint, is he's really beefed up his forehand. And and that's helped him tremendously. Uh, I think it was something coming into the clay court season that I was interested in because I saw it in February and March when he was having great results on the hard court. But that's his lack of weight on his ground strokes have been an issue for him on clay, and it's no longer an issue. So I think what we saw in Rome is for real, and I think he's a contender. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's very well said. I, I mean, I, I was penciling in, of course, Carlos Alcaraz right at the top of this list before Rome began, understandably, with the incredible results. And he's now 30 and three on the season. I, I don't know. How much do you think we should put put stock in this sort of shock upset in Rome, losing to a qualifier, Fabian Morozin, um, kind of out of nowhere? Uh, d does that maybe, you know, make him a little more vulnerable to the field heading into Roland Garros, or is it a factor at all? 
Yeah, pretty much zero for me. The guy is allowed a bad loss. I mean, he hadn't lost all yeah. year before a semifinal. The shocking part about it was Marojan's resume coming into the event. That was the surprising part about it. You, you rarely see a, a guy who had never beaten a top 100 player, never won on tour, come in, beat a about-to-be-world-number-one on this on a great win streak. I mean, that's what made it rare. But really, watching the match, Morojan played a level that was just really, really shockingly good. And I think that's a a bigger takeaway out of the match for me than what it means for Alcaraz at Roland Garros. Because to me, it's like, look, bad day in the office, especially in best of three, happens. I mean, we're almost halfway through the season and it hadn't happened once to him. So it's allowed to happen once. Yeah. And uh, I mean, he's still uh, retaking that world number one ranking. And we see the seeds play out with one, two, and three Alcaraz, Medvedev, and Djokovic. And we'll talk about Novak Djokovic because, uh, I mean, the form in Australia I thought was incredible, especially given that he was dealing with something there. We know he was dealing with a, an issue in his hamstring. And I, I thought his forehand was just unbelievable that tournament in, in Melbourne. And, and since then, I, I'll I'll ask your perspective on this. I feel like he just looks like he's playing a bit passive. Um, like I don't know if he's hanging back. He's he's not hitting with the same conviction that I was seeing earlier in the season. Yeah, there's not as much heft on the forehand or the serve, probably for that matter. Although I do think that the serve kind of got better after Monte Carlo to a certain extent and Banya Luca. Uh, I don't think he's right. I think the elbow has still been an issue. Uh, we saw him in his loss to Holger Runa take uh, painkillers during the first set. And we know Novak Djokovic does not like to or want to take painkillers. There is a, a, a history with that right elbow, uh, which is the really scary part if you're a Novak mm -hmm. or if you're a Novak fan. Uh, look, I don't need to, I don't mean to ring any kind of long term alarm bells, but a short term. I think something's wrong. Uh, I don't, you know, I, I also think it's been reflected in his mood out on the court. I just don't think he's, he's looked happy at any point. And I think that's reflective of how he's feeling physically clay. And look, if, if we were going into the Australian open or Wimbledon, I might say, look, Novak only looks 80%, but guess what? He's so good. So dominant. I think he can win the Australian open or Wimbledon at 80%. I don't look at Roland Garros that way. I, I think ever really, and I know he's won, he's won a French Open in, in 2021, so, you know, recent, but everything has to click for him on clay these days. It's not as easy for him. He's out of his physical prime, and I don't think he can win with less than his best in Paris. So uh, I'm a little concerned about him. Yeah, and uh, I, I mean, if you look back to his most recent title at Roland Garros 2021, uh, I would argue maybe that semifinal win over Nadal was probably the best clay court performance of his career. Now, is he going to need to channel that because Rafa is not there? It's <laughs> the question. But uh, we'll talk about the guy who beat him and uh, Holger Runa, who uh, I think is one of the most impressive young athletes on the tour. Um, you know, a lot of skills in his toolbox uh, in the way he defensively covers the court and how terrific his backhand wing is. 
is he suddenly like surely he's a part of that conversation now too as someone who should be winning slams in the future we haven't seen a deep run at a slam yet but we haven't also seen him compete in many majors yeah he's totally in that conversation and it's funny when someone hasn't done it when someone hasn't won a major you wonder about the the mind like is the mind ready to do this go all the way handle that pressure i don't worry about holger's mind I think he eats up big matches for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. He's seven, seven and two against top five opponents. He yeah. doesn't seem to get nervous at all. He, uh, he just really kind of enjoys those opportunities. I do worry about the body. Physically, I'm not sure if he can, if he can get there. So I love the game. I love the mental. But uh, he was fatigued in the Monte Carlo final. He was fatigued in this Rome final against Medvedev uh, where, you know, he really had nothing left after going up 5-3 in the second set, making things physical. I don't know if he has the endurance to to do this for two weeks, best of five, especially if stuff gets tough at the end against the very best in the world. Yeah, no, that's, that's a good point. And that should bring us to, I made, you know, a, a formal list here of my top five men's contenders, and I'll, I'll give you five down to one, and maybe we can discuss, and I'll have a couple honorable mentions as well. And sure. number five on my list, I, I have Stefano Tsitsipas, he's five, and of course, former French Open finalist, Holger Runa, number four, Daniil Medvedev, I have number three. Novak two and Carlos Alcaraz as my top favorite for Roland Garros. Would you, uh, would you differ on, on any of those spots there? You have any other names completely in your top five? I think I like that a lot, actually. Oh, really? Um, yeah, I do. I, I think, you know, especially Especially the, the, the mental factor with, with Tsitsipas, obviously much more accomplished on the surface than, than Runa. But, you know, I think you leave Sinner out. I think you leave Rublev out. I think that's correct. I think, you know, Rude you leave out. I, I, I agree with that as well. So I'm pretty confident that your five guys are, are my five guys. Should Djokovic be number two because he's Djokovic? Probably. You know, yeah. probably. It, it's, it's hard <laughs> It's hard to kind of say that Daniil Medvedev has a better chance to win this than than Novak Djokovic, uh, just just given the the clay court pedigree, the clay court resume, and and Alcaraz at number one is a is a layup uh, for me right now. I mean, he has won the majority of the slow court tournaments that he has entered this year. He has won, and. He already has his major. We know he can do it. Uh, Runa, Sinner, uh, a lot of the others can't really say the same. And uh, I think the peak level for Alcaraz has has shown to be the most, at least overwhelming level in men's tennis. Do, do you think his game plays up even more in a best of five format, given, given how many options he has to beat you and how physical a player he is? Well... Certainly at the U.S. Open, what he did from an endurance standpoint is one of the greatest feats in the history of tennis. Statistically. Statistically, yeah. that's true. Nobody has ever spent more time on court en route to a major final. I'm not ready to say the best of five elevates him or, or makes him you know, a lot better. 
I just need to see a little bit more and gather. But I will say, I don't think it hurts him. Yeah. And, you know, certainly he's not going to be somebody who gets who gets tired easily. Um, yeah. Although we did see in Miami, that was uh, – I, I could never really figure out why that was. Uh, but but he did seem to get a little bit tired against Yannick. Uh, and, again, that was kind of a mystery to me, kind of out of nowhere. But he did seem a bit fatigued. That said, even if he had, you know, the the fullest extent of his legs engaged, I still don't know if he would have won that match. Yeah, no, and uh, Yannick was playing incredible. That that should segue to my two honorable mentions for this men's field of like, they're not in my top five, but maybe it's conceivable they do it, is Yannick Sinner and Kasper Ruud, who was the finalist last year. And if, if you look back this past week at Rome, I thought he was playing very good tennis. He was in position to win that match against Holger Rune and be in that final uh, before he sort of had a letdown and seemed to get a little distracted. Yeah. It, it it's it's positive and negative with the Runa match because he really fell off. He yep. lost his confidence and his confidence just it's been a little fragile this year. You'd like to see him you'd like to see him uh go through a bad stretch and kind of rebound and find his best tennis again instead of I, I think kind of losing a little bit of belief there. But that's kind of a symptom of when you're having a tough year, that kind of thing tends to happen. Here's what Casper would tell you. He would tell you, look, I was not playing well throughout the clay court season in 2022 either. I turned it around in Rome, which he did. Yep. I then won Geneva, and then I was ready to go all the way to the final in Paris. So I actually didn't see if he's playing this week or not. I, I imagine he actually is, if I were to guess. But I don't know if you have that, Ben. But... Uh, he is he, he is in fact playing Geneva you're right yep okay so he's going to try to defend his title in Geneva look can can he do it again can he figure it out again the thing is last year he did get some draw opportunity yeah. uh, i don't think that'll happen again i uh but i thought there were positive signs in rome when it comes to what he was doing on the court no doubt about it so something to track good to see casper just kind of get things going in the right direction again yeah, uh, certainly. And and for Yannick Sinner, at least, I, I think he's in the conversation. I I know, obviously, Miami is a hardcore tournament, but the, the level that he was showing there, and for me, he carried it over at the beginning of the clay court season in Monte Carlo. I thought he was playing uh, unbelievably well there, had an opportunity to beat Runa in the semis there and, and maybe play for a title. So I, I think he's in the mix. I do want to ask you about um, the 14-time Grand Slam champion who will not be there what will it feel like to watch a, a French Open without Rafael Nadal? In fact, it's been, you know, 25 years since we've had a French Open without Rafa or Fed, which is uh, an incredible, you know, it's, it spans a generation almost. It's going to be, it's going to be pretty strange. And sometimes there are some tournaments that don't feel strange anymore. Like if you think about the Sunshine Double and you look at Nadal and Djokovic's participation in the last five or so years, it's been pretty sparse. So sometimes we come into those tournaments and people will ask me like, hey, no Nadal and Djokovic. How weird is that? And then my response is like, no, it's not weird. Like we, <laughs> they haven't been playing this. Yeah. Uh, but this is going to be weird because he sucks up so much oxygen, rightly so, when he's in this tournament to the, to the extent where... It's like, oh, like, Zverev, you're in the semis? 
all right, but Nadal's in your way. So you're two wins away, yet you feel a million miles away from winning this <laughs> tournament. And uh, we're not going to really have that feeling anymore. Uh, from the very start of the tournament, there's going to be, I think, more of a sense that, all right, you can win this. Alcaraz, uh, I think everybody who we mentioned is going to feel like they can win this. The, the belief is going to be that much higher, I, I think, for the men's side. I'll ask you one question on the women's side as, as we wrap up. I, I believe as we enter this Roland Garros for, for the women's field, it feels like we do sort of have that big three. I mean, we've been talking about it for the past few months, but if I'm going based on form, are your top three contenders our big three of Sabalenka, Rybakina, and Sviantek? Yeah, I don't know that I'm fully sold on, on Rybakina Fair on enough. the slow clay. Like, I, I think... I think it's super positive that she was able to uh, to get through to get through Rome on a surface that doesn't suit her like that. She that that's almost me complimenting her. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, I still I don't think it suits her. Uh, I do think that Sabalenka has. The, I think there's a lot to like uh, when it comes to Sabalenka on clay. I do think she moves comfortably on it. Uh, I, I do think she can go toe-to-toe in baseline rallies against Iga if it comes to that. I think she appreciates the higher bounce and the extra time. So, yeah, uh, you you got a feeling very early on in this 2023 that Iga, Rybakina, and, uh, and Sabalenka were going to bring more stability to the WTA Tour at the top than we've seen in many, many years. And that has 100% been the case. Yep. And I think at the end of the year, when we look at the race, it's going to be those three at the top. And if you think of last year, the difference when, when there were a lot of names like Bedosa and Contivate and, and, uh, and Jabur, who, who kind of maintained her status uh, towards the top, actually did a good job of that. But there, there was just a lot of shuffling, a lot of shuffling. Uh, Krejcikova getting injured and kind of falling off. And uh, that, that kind of... Uh, wild fluctuations of who is alive at the end of big tournaments on the women's side. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have not seen that this year and I don't expect that to change. Yeah. Well, well said. Let's, let's wrap with, if you can give me one dark horse pick from the women's field and one dark horse pick from the men, someone outside the top 10, you could picture making a deep run at the French open this year. Okay. Let's go for the men. Sarundalo. Oh, I, I like love that. His, I just love his forehand on clay. The serve, I, I, I really wish the serve were better, but this is the surface where he can get into return games, get into rallies, and and use that big forehand uh, to kind of control play. Uh, for the women's side, I'm gonna pull up the rankings here so I can skim some names. Sure. Uh, and I'm gonna go outside the top fifteen. Oh, nice. I like that. Yeah, I don't want to... Uh, if are, are you really a dark horse if you're inside the top 15? I don't know about that. <laughs> um, I've really liked Potapova this year. Yep. I like I like Potapova as well. I'll, I'll give you my, my dark horse pick. I'm I'm going to go with uh, Lorenzo Musetti for, for the men's field. Okay. Uh, of course, clay is his favorite surface. Beautiful aesthetic game. 
the results have been pretty solid this clay courts season. And he seems like a guy who'd be, you know, capable of that sort of top 10 upset. If he's running into say a Felix and in the early stages, getting a big win Um, on the women's side, I'm going to go with uh, Zheng Xin Wen. (laughs) I love love her game. I know. Yeah. And she seems to be an all surface player. I, I get that sense. Yeah, and I think she loves the clay for her forehand. She gets tons of RPMs on that forehand. Probably, I haven't looked at the stats or the data, and it's harder to find on the women's side, unfortunately, compared to the men's side. But I would venture to say she might be second after Iga on wow. with the topspin on the forehand. Uh, and then two players who just just feel really under-ranked right now. Uh, Karolina Muhova, because she's coming back from from injury. Yep. Uh, she, she just She's not going to be seated. You don't want to play her and someone who will be seated, but at this time still feels very underranked on clay is Paula Bedosa, who seems to be finding it again. Yes. Bedosa seems to be uh, finding that, that game that took her to world number two just a couple of years ago. So um, we'll see how it all transpires. I'm excited to see the type of draws we get on both the men's and women's side, which, which could definitely shape uh, some opinions uh, about how we feel about things. Gil, it's a pleasure to have you on uh, the podcast for the first time. Always a delight. And uh, it's great to follow your match recaps and analysis as well. Thanks, Ben. Uh, Appreciate you having me on. I can't, I can't divulge more, but I, I do think there's something in the pipeline next two or three weeks that will be of interest uh, of in Canadian tennis, Okay, it's a guest, and I'm going to leave it at that. (laughs) All right. I love the tease for that. Thank you, Gil. Um, Have a great day, and uh, we'll catch up with you another time. Thanks, Ben. Have a good one. There you have it, my conversation with Gil Gross. And look, I I mean, writing's on the wall. You don't have a 14-time Grand Slam champion in Rafael Nadal, 14 times at the one event in French Open. That obviously it leaves this slam incredibly open, much more so than in the men's field in Australia a few months ago, where of course Novak has dominated for so so long. And I think probably the same scenario when we were talking when Wimbledon comes up, where obviously Djokovic, I, I think, will be the heavy favorite there on the men's side. But it's very, very interesting if we talk about the men's to begin with. So many names. And I mean, I think Gil was saying what he had like a short list of about eight guys that he could see potentially doing it. And you were kind of, you know, right there along with them. And you both listed your top five. And of course, we could see, you know, any of those five being standing on the last day hosting hosting the trophy. Uh, I think it's the most interesting Roland Garros in terms of the lead up, uh, because it could go, you know, many different ways, as opposed to just predictably Rafa or maybe Djokovic in there as well. And um, so, yeah, I'm very excited. I like it this way. I, I don't know if clay court purists are, are kind of, you know, oh, what's this Medvedev now all of a sudden in contention <laughs> as well. And, you know, I don't, I don't put them as high as, as you had them there. So, I mean, if I'm going to share my, my five, I guess mm-hmm. I would put, um, I don't even know if I would have put Medvedev as the fifth one, but I guess you kind of have to now out of respect for what he's done in Rome. Uh, but then CC pass to me, Djokovic, Holger Runa, and then Alcaraz at the top. And uh, Djokovic, to me, as as Gil was mentioning, uh, you know, if he's going 80 percent into Wimbledon or the Aussie Open, I still consider him the favorite. Uh, but just too many question marks right now. And and despite the fact that it was a three set loss to Runa, you know, it wasn't a straight set one by any stretch. I, I still just don't have a confident vibe. And I, I don't think he has a confident vibe either. So that drops him to three on on my list. Yeah. OK. And well, let's let's briefly talk about 
Holger Runa because uh, you're putting a lot of respect next to his name. Obviously, the huge win over Djokovic. He's beat he's beaten him twice now in Masters 1000s, which is really impressive. Beat him at Paris last year and went on to win that title. In in this one, wins six two four six six two in the quarters, gets past Casper Ruud in a tough semifinal before losing to Medvedev in the final. Um, do you think he's he's ready to be a guy who could go the distance at a slam at a major? Yeah, I do. I definitely do. I mean, look at his record against top five players, top 10 players. He's money. You know, he comes to play in those matches. He's not intimidated by these guys. He's not scared of them. Uh, He's got a swagger, you know, that uh, I'm not saying I always enjoy the way that that necessarily presents itself. Um, But I I just think in terms of, you know, he's here. He's not, you know, I'm writing an article about sort of wrapping up Rome and I was writing, you know, rising star Holger Runa, like, He's past being a rising star. I mean, mm. he is a star already, and he just turned 20 like a few weeks ago. So, um, yeah, the age thing is no longer, I think, uh, you know, something that's going to hinder my predictions for him or my confidence for him. Uh, I, I think he's ready to rock, and it wouldn't surprise me if he won his first slam here in a few weeks' time. Yeah, uh, he's he's definitely one of the contenders. Just to talk about Daniil Medvedev for a moment, with this title, okay, 20 titles in his career, that's an, an amazing achievement. He has five titles on the season, 39-5 and five record. Um, he'll get the number two seed now at Roland Garros. It's, it's Carlos Alcaraz holding the number one ranking. and We'll get the top seed, but I think there's an argument to say, there's really an argument for all three of these guys, Djokovic, Alcaraz, Medvedev, of who has been the best player of 2023. And there are many strong arguments to make that maybe it's been Medvedev, frankly. Yeah, and yet on the clay, I still kind of have an asterisk there, you know? So, yes, he just won in Rome, of course. Um, But quarterfinals in Monte Carlo, uh, round of 16 loss in Madrid to Karatsev. So it's just like, uh, I don't know, great result for him as well. He's talking afterwards about how you know, changes to his strings this year have really helped him. He feels like on clay and that his movement is better and he's, he's trusting in those shots to land deeper in the court. But uh, to me, I still, uh, I don't see him winning the French Open. Um, and and I see him getting to, you know, probably the quarters-ish. Depends mm. who he lines up against, I, I suppose, as well. But I still don't consider him a, a true clay court threat, you know, to win Roland Garros best of five, despite his recent result here in Rome. And, you know, Hey, maybe I'll be proven wrong. It's happened many, many times before with things I say. But uh, to me, he's still not, you know, in the in the top three guys there. For, for yeah, and well, look, I, I, all of us are in agreement, our guest and you and I as well, is that Carlos Alcaraz has to be, based on his form um, through the entire season when he's played, the prohibitive prohibitive favorite for Roland Garros, especially given um, an injured Rafa is missing the event. First time in 25 years, no Federer or Nadal at Roland Garros will be a weird vibe, as Gil said. How strange is that? eh? How crazy is that? And uh, I mean, those two and the impact they've had on the sport and one of them is still going and and really good to hear that Rafa wants to come back and and has plans to play next, next year, 2024. And we hope he can get healthy for that. But the impact is immeasurable. I mean, when my kids are outside playing tennis in our in our backyard on the, the driveway, they still say often, oh, I'm Rafa and I'm Roger. And these are my <laughs> kids who don't even yeah. really have that many like actual conscious memories of watching their matches because my kids yep. are so young. But the names are just like either on your brain in terms of when you think of tennis. So, um, you know, again, 
to look at the flip side of, of Rafa, you know, not getting his 15th uh, title there this year, it, it really opens it up. And, and I just think it's going to make for a whole lot more storylines. It's going to make our jobs a little bit more exciting on this side of things in the media, um, more things to talk about, more possibilities. And, uh, you know, glass half full to me when I look at what the tournament's going to be like this year on the men's side. Yeah, and let's hope if we talk about the men's side for one moment longer, that one of our Canadians can get hot. Felix Ojaliasim is playing Lyon, and I think it's a tune-up that he really needs this week because he's only got two clay matches in this entire swing, an opening round loss in Madrid, and then in Rome loses in three sets, 6-4, 4-6, 7-5 to Alexi Popperin. So it's not an ideal you know time for him to be going into the second major of the season completely out of form a guy who is i mean he's defending round of 16 points i when i look at back at what he did at the french open last year i thought he was playing exceptionally well it's just he needs a couple match wins under his belt so hopefully they can come this week yeah he kind of ended his hardcore season with a whimper right going out early in uh in Miami, played so yeah. well in Indian Wells in that loss to uh, to Alcaraz in that six four six four loss to Alcaraz, uh, but then really he went out with a whimper in Miami, and then the clay court season, as you just mentioned, has not been anything to write home about for Felix. So you know you don't want to be playing an event the week before a slam, right? Like really, if you're playing that event, it's uh, you're you're looking for extra ranking points, uh, or you're looking for some confidence that hasn't been there, unfortunately, or you're a lower ranked player and you're playing it out of total necessity well he's a top 10 guy and mm -hmm. so really he shouldn't be in this draw and it speaks volumes to the fact that he's still looking for that confidence to click in before Paris and hopefully he gets it great to see him have a deep run in this tournament um, because he really does need it right now I wouldn't include Felix in my uh, you know top 10 guys at the moment the way he's been playing for this yeah. tournament yeah, I, I'd agree with you. If we touch on the women's side and, you know, Gil and I did talk about Elena Rybakina, um, her amazing season just continues. Now two titles, two WTA 1000 titles, I should say, just this year, the Australian Open final and, of course, the Wimbledon uh, title dating back to the uh, last year. She's now a new career high ranking of number four. It goes Iga one, Sabalenka two, Pagula three, Rybakina four. We know who the three best players of the year have been, um, undoubtedly, with Iga, Arena, Elena. Um, it, it's incredible to see uh, how much she's turned it on this season after she really didn't get the proper credit she deserved in, in Wimbledon, now winning a huge title on the clay. Yeah, it's about time her ranking caught up to where we all, you know, believe obviously she is. Yeah. There's no doubt who the top three players on the women's tour have been this year. So nice to see that. That'll be more helpful for her in draws as well as if she needs any more help the way she's played. Um, similar to what I said with Medvedev, I, I don't put Rabakina in my favorites at, at Roland Garros, you know, despite her win uh, here in Rome. And and what a weird way of of winning it as well with, you know, not one, not two, but three walkover wins, including yep. in the final, which is always so disappointing. That yeah, you know, That's the worst. I feel so bad for, for tennis fans who go to a final, who pay that kind of money to, to go to that final match and then get it, you know, robbed because of injury, um, you know, or something along those lines. So um, that's definitely, um, you know, a, a tough way to see a tournament end. And I'm not taking away from her winning as she earned the, the victory, but just, you mm -hmm. know, strange to see three of those six wins come by virtue of, uh, of a walkover and, who knows how things would have gone against Sviantec in the quarterfinals as they were locked up at two in that final set. Um, good for Rabakina, but I, I still don't put her in my upper echelon of, of clay court threats. And and really, outside of Sabalenka and Sviantec, I mean, those two have been so money 
in recent weeks that, you know, you're really banking on those two to be there in the final on the women's side. Yeah. And, and look, Sabalenka lost first round in Rome. Um, but let's be honest, she was completely exhausted. Uh, I mean, she had just won Stuttgart a few weeks ago, um, late April. Then she turns around, has to win six tough matches in Madrid, including a marathon three-set match, beating Iga in the final there, and then very quick turnover to head to Rome and play a match against Sofia Kennan. That I, I think she was just burnt out at that point. I, I think that was just a loss based on fatigue, uh, which, which she actually commented on Twitter. I think Iga, for me, is still probably the favorite if I'm picking anyone. The one question mark is her health, right? And I I almost wonder, did she shut it down at 2-all against Rebakine? Just more playing the cautious side, exactly. Just, I have a niggle here. What if it gets worse? Why risk this with Roland Garros around the corner? So, So if that is the case, she bought herself some extra time, almost a week and a half to make sure she's very healthy and fit for the French Open. She probably would be my favorite. Yeah, and and same here, and I feel like most people would say that. I mean, she's won the French Open twice before in in 2020, and and of course last year. So I I consider her quite a heavy favorite, you know. Um, although in best of three, right? It's uh, I almost feel like if it was best of five for her, she would be almost impossible to beat on clay. <laughs> yeah. But the fact that it's best of three, it can still you know you can have swings in a set, and things can get away from you a little bit faster, obviously. Yeah. Um, but but that being said, I think she's going to be the, you know, I'm not uh, the betting type, but the the odds on favorite will will go to Iga for sure. Yeah, uh, we should just discuss quickly Leila Annie Fernandez. She lost in the first round of Rome to Sassanovich. Tough match, 7-6, 4-6, 6-3. And she's been hungry to play more tennis because she played an ITF in Spain um, right after that, uh, which was in the second week of Rome. She won a couple matches there, lost in the semis to Sarah Cerebe's Tormo. And this week she's playing again. She's playing the Morocco Open where she's seated fifth. So I know results-wise, especially on the single side results-wise, it hasn't been the season uh, that Layla has wanted so far that she's just hungry to get back on court and play again and again. And she knows she does have quarterfinals points to defend at Roland Garros. Yeah, probably feeling that pressure. And I mean, she's young enough to go out and be able to handle the week in, week out. You hope she's not overloading herself, obviously. Um, been great to see her success in doubles and her and Taylor Townsend have been such a fun tandem to watch. You got to assume they're going to be playing together in the women's doubles draw at Roland Garros. Um, but, uh, yeah, the singles still kind of waiting for that to click, but, but I like her going out there and similar to Felix playing an extra tournament and trying to get a little bit more match play and get that confidence clicking. And so maybe this is pushing her in the right direction where she can, uh, you know, if she gets the right kind of a draw. She's a proven clay court player before having won the junior French Open tournament back in 2019, making the quarters, as you mentioned, um, a year ago. So uh, I would put her in that dark horse category and I'd throw Bianca Andrescu in there as well, which we'll talk about more next week in our our proper French Open preview episode. But uh, I've got more faith on the women's side that Layla Annie and Bianca could, you know, put something together and go on a bit of a run. Uh, whereas Felix and I mean, we didn't even mention Dennis and and I don't think there's a reason to right now on clay, of course, just mm-hmm. with, um, you know, he, he didn't play the last tournament working on things in practice, I guess. But uh, yeah, Bianca and Leila Annie never count them out. I always I always feel positive that they can make something happen um, on clay here. Yeah, hopefully. And I hope also we see Jeannie Bouchard 
in qualifying have to confirm if she'll be present or not because she was playing a 125k in Italy last week, won a couple matches, and then gave Sarah Arani a walkover after losing the first set. So I don't know if health is concerned. I'm not sure if it was the shoulder or something else. Uh, so that'll be health dependent if she can play in qualifying or not, which is already underway. Um, last piece of news, and this will be positive news, former Wimbledon finalist and former world number three, Milos Raonic. His name has appeared in a draw upcoming in June. His name is in the field for Hertogenbosch. Uh, I believe he'll take a protected ranking to get in there uh, if he does follow suit and play. Uh, but look, if, if we do see Milos back on court, that is terrific news, I think, for Canadian tennis fans. It's been a long while since we've seen Milos. It's been, what, almost two years since he last played a professional match? And Yeah, almost exactly. A lot of people out there on social media have been asking, you know, what's going on? Are we going to see him again? Is he retiring? Uh, you know, we, he got married last year, and, and, and maybe he was ready to sail off into the sunset. And, you know, if he had, you know, you couldn't have faulted him and, and nothing but positive comments for what he's accomplished and what he's done in his career and how he's put Canadian tennis you know, him and Jeannie Bouchard really came first in terms of the last 10 years making Canada a, a name to to look out for with both of them making Wimbledon finals, among other accomplishments. And, you know, we, we've known unofficially and off the record that uh, he has been working towards, you know, coming back. So this is fantastic news. Hopefully we can share even more in the weeks ahead. And um, of all the surfaces to come back on, of all the times of year to come back at, you know, I'm expecting it's going to take him a while to get his groove, but grass court tennis is is his bread and butter. No doubt. No doubt. I think it's perfect timing. If his health is there, uh, what better surface to make a return? Uh, fingers crossed he is healthy. And look, he's only 32 years old. Um, you know, <laughs> we've he's seen got these. Time. He's got time. He's got, he's got some time. We can prolong careers these days. So uh, I think there could be a few good years still ahead for Milos Raonic if his body can hold up. Plenty more podcasts ahead for us at Matchpoint Canada, guys. We will be back next week with a proper Roland Garros preview. You've been listening to Matchpoint Canada. We'll talk to you next time.